dismissed to teach me to worship. As I have said in the past weeks, the closer and the closer that we come to chapter 19, the tougher and the tougher the text becomes. It's not because of language or syntax. It's not because it's hard to understand culturally what's happening in these passages. But it's because of the content that we see in this passage. If you're unable to imagine this scene that's happening in John 18 and 19, imagine a community leader is frustrated with you. I'm sure that's never happened to anyone in this room. Because something that you have said has caused a disturbance. You keep upsetting all your neighbors. Imagine in this story, all of a sudden, the police show up at your house with the local community council and with your pastor and elders. I don't know which of that group you fear more. They found you and you've been up all night. Because you've been worried about what's going to happen the next day. You actually had your friends over to pray for you. And they kept falling asleep. And then when this group shows up to arrest you, you turn around and they're all gone. Then you're taken by this group, which you could have escaped, but you let them take you. And you're brought first to your church. You're right here. And someone in your church brings up false testimony and accusations against you. And then me and the other elders, Bill, Mike, and Bill, and Blake, we listen to this false testimony. And when you give your side of the story, one of us slaps you across the face. And your only words are, are said, I have done nothing wrong. And now you're led down the street to the governor's house because he's in town for the local festival. And this governor is also a federal judge. And he begins to ask you questions and preparing you for a trial. And in today's world, you, at this point, someone would have told you, get a lawyer. But you haven't taken one. Because you want to stand as the sole witness for what you have said and for the truth. And you're not just standing for your friends or for your family members. You're also standing for the sole truth of everyone who's betrayed you. Of everyone who has left you. Of everyone who has ever argued with you about something. For everyone who has ever gossiped about you, or told a lie, or given false testimony about you. This is the scene so far. This is where we are this morning. And it gets worse. Because through all this, somehow you're calm and collected. And you're prepared to do what your father has asked you to do. You're going to take the blame for something that you haven't done. 
you know that you are guiltless. He knows you are guiltless. But you both know that you're going to be charged as guilty. We continue to see in this narrative a historical account of the trial of Jesus. And I'm not sure how many of you have actually been in the courtroom. Judge Judy does not count. Although sometimes it seems at Christ Pres we have the, we're hosting the Fayette County Bar Association every Sunday morning. And I'm only speculating, and what I'm hoping is that none of you have been on trial where there have been brought witnesses against you. We probably haven't seen eyewitness testimony given in person. Sitting through real evidence. Sitting through real cross-examinations. Yet this morning, this is where we enter into. This courtroom drama where Jesus stood on trial. It's Good Friday. And this morning, I want us to focus on just one thing. I want us to focus on Jesus. And I want you to see how Jesus responds to this false testimony. I want you to see how Jesus responds to this false accusations and false witnesses. I'm not going to give you a pointed outline because I want you to see this narrative and fix your eyes on Jesus and see him for who he truly is. The Savior of the world. Before we get there, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, be with us this morning. Father, help us see you, to see Jesus. Remove our hearts of stone and give us a heart of flesh. Call us to be your people. Allow us to know that you are our God. We expect nothing to happen in this room this morning except by your omnipotent and sovereign power and your wonderful grace. Father, I pray for those who are hurting in our church. I pray for Cynthia and for Jonathan. I pray for Miss Claire and for Dr. Lynch. I pray for Chandler's mother and Robert's mother. Father, you know the needs of our church. Lord, bring us a new youth director. Someone who will love our children with the love of Jesus and the love for your word. Father, may our church be a light to this community. We pray for our first responders this morning. Protect them. We pray for Skip Taylor and for Ronnie Neal and for Michael Brown. Lord, we pray for our sister church, Christ Covenant Church in Hernando, Mississippi. 
for its pastor, Jim Plunk. Lord, may they celebrate your resurrection this morning. Lord, we pray for the city of Memphis. Shower them with your peace that can only be found in Christ. We pray for Governor Bill Lee. We pray for President Biden and Vice President Harris. We pray for our representatives, David Kustoff, and our senators, Marcia Blackburn and Bill Haggerty. Lord, you have put these people in position of power. May they use that power for goodness and justice and mercy. Lord, your word tells us that you are the king of the nations. We pray that your word and your truth in Jesus Christ might go to those nations. Be with our missionaries, Jeff and Katie Saunders. Be in their ministry as they love the people of Japan. And Father, we pray as you taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, and suffered under Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate. What makes him so special that he's in the creed of the church? Well, it becomes very clear because Pontius Pilate plays such a role in the story of God's great redemption for his people. It's because Pontius Pilate crucified God. He functions in this drama as the one who judged the innocent and murdered Jesus. As the civil authority, he arraigned Jesus, put him on trial, asked for his plea, took his deposition. He signed the arrest warrant by sending his Roman soldiers into that garden. He took evidence, and this morning, this is what we find. Three times, Pilate says, I find no guilt in him. Pontius Pilate acquitted Jesus of all charges. Yet, Jesus was still found guilty and was given the capital punishment for his crime. This isn't what we should expect, but this is what we find. Pilate hears and dismisses this case. The elders of the church, the Sanhedrin, hear this case. 
and Pilate does nothing. D.A. Carson writes, If Pilate had been stamped with any type of integrity, his verdict would have ended the matter. Jesus would have been released, and the Jewish authorities would have been dismissed. But this is what you might not know about Pilate. Pilate's hands were already tied. We have plenty of extra-biblical information about Pilate, from the Jewish historian Josephus, from the Jewish theologian Philo, and from the Roman historian Tacticus. We know that Pilate was appointed as governor of this region in 26 AD by the emperor Tiberius. And as R.C. Sproul helpfully points out, being governor of Israel is a nightmare. It's like being asked to watch our fourth and fifth graders on Wednesday night. <laughs> Both of my sons are fourth and fifth grade, no offense. Some days they're fine but some days you have to call for backup. Pilate's rule lasted till 37 AD. Josephus tells us this story in his book, The Jewish Wars. Students, you should know who Josephus is. We heard about him in Mark chapter 13 this past week. Josephus tells us that one of the first things that Pilate did when he was placed as governor was he brought in Roman standards into the city of Jerusalem. Now, a Roman standard is a statue of the emperor. You can understand how this might make the Jews angry. He brought an image, a statue, into the city of God. Other governors had come in, but they had never brought one, a statue, a standard, into the city. And this is what the people did. They did a sit-in protest. Thousands of Jews went to his house, and they sat down until he took away the standards. And this is what Pilate did. He told his soldiers to go in to draw their swords, and he promised the Jews that he would slaughter all of them if they didn't leave. And this is what Josephus records that the Jews did. The Jews as it were at one signal, fell down in fast number, exposing their necks and cried out that they would sooner be slain than for their laws to be transgressed. And Pilate conceded. Pilate ordered his soldiers to stand down and to take the standards out of Jerusalem. I say all this because it is very important for us to understand this back history of Pilate's relationship with this with these Jews, and I believe it's very significant for us this morning. Because if we want to know why Pontius Pilate was so weak, so pliable to this clamoring Jewish mob, we must understand he's in a political predicament. If all Jerusalem is crying out for the blood of Jesus and Pilate doesn't give it to them, the people are going to protest to Caesar. And then he will be seen as having no power over his people. So what does he do? He tries to release Jesus. He offers him, he offers the Jews a chance. You can have Jesus or you can have Barabbas. 
Here's what that's equivalent to. You can have Jesus or you can have Osama bin Laden. John gives us the shortest description. He calls him a robber. And in your ESV translation, there, there should be a footnote that says he was also known as an insurrectionist. The word literally means one who seizes plunder. Matthew says of Barnabas, he was a notorious prisoner. For a first century Roman, he would be identified as a terrorist. Do you hear that irony? What did Caiaphas say of Jesus in chapter 11? He said, it is better for Israel that one man, Jesus, should die, not that the whole nation should perish. Caiaphas was afraid that if Rome heard of Jesus, he would obliterate them. The Jews' biggest fear was that Jesus would be seen as an insurrectionist, a revolutionary, and that the Jews would be punished because of him. And so these are their two choices. Barabbas, someone who has been charged and found guilty of insurrection, or Jesus, who Pilate tells us three times, I find no guilt in him. And the Jews are exposed. They so have desired for this Messiah, this Son of God, this promised heir of David, to liberate them from Rome, but they just don't want Jesus. They don't want the kind of kingdom that Jesus offers. They want someone who looks like Barabbas, a political savior, someone who takes kingdoms by force. And this is the same type of savior our world wants, one who comes with a great procession. Have you ever noticed that in every movie, when the hero or the group of heroes walk out, they walk in like this V-shaped form? This is the type of hero our world wants, one that takes over with power, that overthrows its political enemies, and someone who lords it over them, that they now have power. Our world loves people who take things by force, who impose their will regardless the cost. Someone who stands up for the little guy. Someone who, who will give the people what they want, even if it means bending the rules for just a little while. Because what the world wants is a leader that looks like them. Israel wants to be released from this oppressive leader who imposes his diabolical laws which contradict everything they believe in, and they want him to be overthrown in a fight. And they think the only way they can do it is to fight the way that the oppressor fights. And this is the opposite of what they find in Jesus. Because he doesn't impose his power in the world the way that the world thinks is best. He executes his power through humility and grace. But the people want Barabbas. They cry out, not this man, but Barabbas. And what does Pilate do? 
he flogs Jesus. Now, some, including myself, believe that what Pilate is actually doing here is for Jesus' own good. He has Jesus flogged because he's trying to create pity for the group. He's trying to show, I will punish him so I can let him go. Because, again, Pilate finds no faults in him. He's probably hoping that after seeing Jesus so severely beaten, that this Jewish mob might actually have pity. But the crowd will have none of it. And listen to what they did to Jesus. They did what was equivalent to what we see in the early 20th century as being tarred and feathered. With hands they struck his face. The one who John tells us at the beginning of the gospel, the one who made their own hands. They put upon the king of glory who should be crowned with a, a crown of everlasting glory. They put on his head a crown of thorns. This Jesus they should have exalted with David's royal robes. Yet they draped purple robe, a purple robe over him to ridicule him and to mock him. And they came to him and said, Hail, King of the Jews, as they slapped and they spit on him. Oh, the irony. And then John pours on more. Because this is what Pilate says. Behold the man. This is the God-man. This is the man that God created all men to be. This is the man who has come to undo everything that the man, Adam, has done to the world. It is this one man who has come to undo sin and destruction. And is this one man who has the keys to life? And they're trying to kill him. And then Pilate runs back to Jesus because he's afraid of who he might be because of the Jews that say, he is claiming to be the son of God. And he says, where are you from? And listen to what Jesus says says, you have no authority over me at all, unless it has been given to you from above. Therefore, he who, delivers, who delivered me over to you has a greater sin. This greater sin is speaking of the Jews handing Jesus over. Yet, we see that Pilate is caught in sin. Sin of compliance. Sin of passivity. Sin of omission. For this is what John writes. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. 
But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Pilate's hands are tied. Even though he finds no guilt, even though there is no evidence, even though he has heard Jesus' testimony, he hands him over to the people to save face. I wonder how many times, myself included, we've done something like this. Just to save face, we make a mockery of Jesus. That is, through our guilt of omission, failing to act, failing to stand for truth, failing for, to do what's right, failing to stand for Jesus. Students, this is what we call guilt by association. If you are with people who do something wrong, you are liable. I think. I'm not a lawyer. This is collective guilt. And how often do we do this to Jesus? That we stand passively by and don't do anything. Now, Pilate here is representing the world. And of course, this is how the world treats Jesus. They mock him. But then why do we do this to Jesus? Because this is what Jesus has saved us from. He has saved us from the world that we might go into the world to be a light in the dark. And yet these are still the types of sins that we have to confess. Sins of omission, omission, sins of standing by, being passive, and not standing for our king's righteousness. Yet, as John tells us, there still is greater sin. For in this drama, we see God's own people, not just the Romans, we see God's own people who aren't just standing idly by and watching injustice happen. What are they saying? Pilate says, I find no guilt in this man, and what do God's people cry out? Crucify him. Crucify him. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. The one true king, and his people yell, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate has offered them a way out, a lifeboat. He offers them Barabbas. Yet at the last moment, look at what the Jews do. Up to this point, everything that Jesus has done that they find horrific, 
is political. But the very last moment, they change the crime. It becomes theological. And they say, he claims to be the son of God. Again, I want you to hear this irony. Barabbas, his name means son of the father. And yet, there are these charges they now bring against Jesus. He is claiming to be the son of our father. Jesus confirms that the greater sin is that his own people have rejected him. For they cried out, away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. And Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? And this is what the chief priests said. We have no king but Caesar. They yell out that the one the one who should they, they should, con- should confess as king. The kingdom to which they belong to, they yell, crucify him. Because they love the darkness and they hate the light. Because this is what darkness does. Darkness can't stand the light. They cannot coexist. They yell out, We have no king but Caesar. And they betray everything that they stand for. They betray everything in which they were created for. Everything that God has set them apart to be, they have betrayed their king. Crucify him. Crucify him. And unfortunately, this is what we yell every time we choose our sin over Jesus. Every time we align with what the world values over what Jesus values. Every time we exploit rather than protect. Every time we turn a blind eye rather than standing for justice. Every time we choose sexual immorality over covenantal cleanliness. Anytime we choose drunkenness over sobriety. Every time we choose hatred or even gossip over love and peace and unity. Every time we choose sarcasm to show the anger of our hearts rather than the love of Jesus Christ. Every time we show jealousy or envy. Anytime we evolve our lives around anything then Jesus, we are yelling, crucify him, crucify him. Because we love the darkness more than the light. God finds fault in both Pilate and in the Jews. Jesus revealed himself to Pilate as he does the world And if the world rejects him, they will be found as guilty. Yet what we see here is that God will find a greater fault with those who claim to be his people. 
And yet they live their lives in a way that exhorts, crucify him. Crucify him. For those who do not weekly, daily repent of their sin. For those who claim, Jesus is my king, but they live for the way of the world. But here's here's where we see this story of the gospel come in. This is what is so great about God's amazing grace. Is that in the story, we're actually Barabbas. We're the ones that should be charged with murder and insurrection who chose our ways over God's ways. The one who has been found guilty, but yet is made free because Jesus bore his guilt. Not because of an injustice, but because this is what the Father has sent him to do. He exchanged himself for the guilty. Believers, people of God, Jesus has set you free because God charged Jesus for your sins. All of your sins. You who are guilty have been found guiltless because of Jesus. Because God is rich in his mercy. That even when we cry out, crucify him. Because of the great love that he has for us in Jesus Christ. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. He made us alive in Christ. This is the deep love of God for you. This is the deep well of his grace. He took your sins and went to the cross. Let's pray. Father, assurance, assure us of this great grace this morning. May we feel the heavy weight and burden of our sins, but this morning as we come to your table, may we feel that heavy burden lifted because Jesus was charged with our guilt. And he has set us free. We pray in his name. Amen. Let us now stand and turn our Trinity hymnals to page 845. As we say the Apostles' Creed together.
Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty. Please be seated. From the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Eat, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took his cup and he had given thanks. He gave it to his disciples and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.